0: And as they are heading out, you can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 17 and 18. 1 Peter 3, 17 and 18. With that being said, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, uh, guide us, give us direction today. We desperately need it. We've just reminded ourselves again of that amazing grace that saved a wretch like us. May these words that flow easily from our lips, may they truly actually have penetrated our hearts to help us understand who we are, because when we have a wrong view of you, we have a high view of ourselves. So help us to have a right view of you that helps us remember who we are in light of who you are. And then give us a better understanding of salvation and that great cost to redeem. In your son's name we pray, amen. Check the gas before you leave the shop. Now, I heard that over and over and over and over again. For the four years that I worked on a large landscaping company, we were, we were at a pharmaceutical plant that was about 125 acres, and they would tell us every time we would leave, check the gas, top off the gas before you go, because you did not want to be the guy that was on the far end of the property doing something and run out of gas, because then you had to walk all the way back until you found somebody, and then that person had to stop what they were doing to drive you back to the shop, and then to drive you with the gas can back to your mower, and then you had to take your mower all the way back to the shop to fill it up with gas, and everybody would be grumpy because you didn't check the gas. I heard that over and over and over again, even to this day. Before I do something, I'm always topping off the gas, and I wonder why am I doing it, and then the other day, I realized how much this had impacted me. The other day, uh, my son, Timmy, and I are, are throwing the mower onto the, tr- onto the truck to come into town here to, uh, to mow the grass, and I said, did you check the gas? And Tim goes, ah, oh, we'll be fine. In my mind, I'm like, no, no, you don't say things like that, because, you know, you might think we're okay, but we're not. He's like, dad, there's literally a gas station across the road from the coffee shop, but I had heard that so many times that before you know it, I'm just, I'm doing these things, and to him, that was new hearing that phrase and didn't really see the depth of it, but For me, who lived it, you start to see, yeah, maybe it's an important thing to check the gas before you go. But it was interesting, though, repeated phrases, things that you hear over and over and over again. It's interesting because when we come even to Christianity, there's some things that we talk about over and over and over again that before you know it, have we really actually paused and do go, do you understand what we're actually saying? The communion table can be something that we come to so frequently that we forget, oh yeah, I've heard it before. They're going to get up there and they're going to say the same thing about the same stuff. They may use a different passage of Scripture, but it feels like the same thing over and over again. And before you know it, they just come in one ear and out the other and we don't pause and actually think about what's happening. It's interesting as Peter here in our passage here is actually going to be repeating something over and over and over again because if you haven't gotten it yet... Peter has said this over and over and over again, that you're going to suffer, you're going to be insulted, all these things are going to happen to you as an exile, but Christ is our example. These things are going to happen to you, Christ is our example. And we're going to see it again, and we're going to see it from now on to the end. It's stuff's happening to you. Whatever it is, look to Christ. Stuff is happening, look to Christ. And so, let's take a moment here and read the text. For it's better to suffer for doing good... If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. Notice the example there. See, So you're going to suffer, and what does 18 say? For Christ suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What we're going to see here is that Peter, again, is building his case that you're going to suffer. And when that suffering takes place, Christ is your example of this suffering or look to Christ for this suffering and so before we go any further though I want to th- there's a phrase in verse 17 that I want to pause on for a second notice he says "It is better to suffer for doing good and then there's a there's a little phrase there if that should be God's will then for doing evil and so we have to talk about so literally you're suffering and then we got God's will in there so God's will and suffering How does that go out? And also, too, when we start to think about God and his sovereign control over all things and God and and his sovereign good and gracious thing that we start to hear about God, well, how does suffering even fit in that God's will? Because most of us, if we're not careful, think, well, God's will shouldn't include suffering. It should only be, you know, the roses and all the daffodils coming. And what do you mean God's will that we would suffer? And what what does that mean about God? And so these things can come into our mind because one of the things that sadly many people trip over when they're wrestling through God is if God is good and loving, that's how they always start off, you know, why is there any suffering? And so if there's suffering, then you don't have a good and God, you know, a good God, and so God and suffering just can't seem to mix, and then they go off their merry way saying, I don't like that. But I would say... When it comes to suffering and the sovereignty of God and suffering God's will, the problem is we're starting off at the wrong point. And when you start off at the wrong point, you're never going to get to the right conclusion no matter what. And here's the problem. If you you want to turn your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3. When you start off in the wrong setting, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. And usually this is where people start in all of these things. Whenever you get into any biblical conversation with someone who actually wants to have a biblical conversation, not like one of these where we're just going to argue, and no matter how many ways you argue, they're still going to hold their same premise. But when you actually are having a biblical conversation, what you need to do first is you need to go, who is man and also who is God? Because you can't get to, if God is loving in this and how does he interact with man until you have determined who these things are and what does the Bible say about them? And what does the Bible even say about sin? What does the Bible say about suffering? What does the Bible say about all these things? Because if you start off thinking that you as a human being, you have all of these rights that you deserve, you deserve to never get sick, you deserve to be all these, and just fill them in, you're going to come at suffering as if that's a bad thing that should be stopped no matter what, and it's never used for anything good. And suffering is never a positive thing. Suffering is always evil because, remember, if your root statement is everything must be good and everything in my life must be wonderful, the problem then, you get to a wrong concluding part. So let's look at what the Bible even talks about when it deals with the idea of suffering. So in Genesis chapter 3 here, uh, we have Adam and Eve sinning. And let's think about this for a second, though. In Adam and Eve sin they were told you can literally eat of every single tree except how many trees? One. And the day you eat of that, you will die. And what do they do? Instead of seeing all of the beauty that God has given for them, we go right to that tree. We don't know how long the time was, but we know that they go and they eat of the tree. Now, in other texts, it's clear that Eve was tempted, but in I would argue strongly, I think, from the text, Adam is knowingly doing what he's doing because never in, the, in any text is says Eve was tempted, then she gave the fruit. And so we have this idea that Adam fully is aware of what he's doing and Eve is falling into temptation. She gives it to her husband and he understands the law that he is breaking here. It was not a temptation part of Adam. This is a willful act of the will where he is rebelling against what God has called him to do. God says to Adam... In chapter 3 here, Adam, why'd you do this? He blames, so forth and so on. He doesn't say, I was tempted, I didn't know." know. He said, Eve gave it to me and I ate. And from the curse here, we see the curse that is poured out on woman. We see the curse that is poured out on man. We see the curse that is poured out on the serpent. And we see from here that mankind is going to die. They will not live eternally. Their days are limited. The curse that is on them is going to cause them to die and they shall go back to the dust and return from where they go. And in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread and you will return to the ground from when you are taken out. For you are dust and dust, you shall return. Reminding them that they are created beings and because of sin, suffering is going to come. This should cause us to... to take a moment and say, okay, why is suffering here? And the Bible literally tells us because of man's rebellion against their creator. Suffering is not here because God was saying, I'd love to stop it. He's saying, no, this is the consequence of your sin. And one day he's going to handle suffering and heartache and sorrow, but this is the consequence that is being laid down on mankind because of man's rebellion against God. We have to remember that. That it is not as if man is good And everything else around him is the Bible is telling us that man is evil because what we're going to see here that when Adam and Eve did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they actually got the knowledge of good and evil. And guess what they found? The the desire to do evil far outweighed anything else. And they found that they were a slave to that evil. Literally, the Bible talks about the unsaved person is dead in their transgressions of sin. They are a slave to the evil and they will never go back to good unless they literally have a complete heart change. They need to be born again. And so when they saw that the good and evil that was given to them, they desire the evil, and that evil only continues on, and that evil desire is passed down all the way through from Adam to us now. So why is there suffering? Because sin and the rebelliousness of our parents, Adam and Eve, and that suffering and that sin was passed down to us. And So what does this tell us about man? Man is a reminder that we are in constant rebellion against God. Sin and suffering remind us that we are in constant rebellion against God, and even notice where this suffering is coming from. As a believer here, as Peter's talking to these people as believers, their suffering is coming from other sinful people that have not been redeemed, and that suffering is being pounded on them because we live in a world of suffering, and even when you do what is right, you are going to suffer. And then we have to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about God? Because what this tells us about God is very interesting because God did not just say, hey, you guys messed this thing up. It's your own fault. What did Jesus do? Well, there was a text says, for Christ suffered. He came to earth and entered into this suffering and sent his son into the world to suffer and redeem. But this is the life that we have been called to. I want you to take a moment and turn to the book of Job. Job 19 Where we have one of the great—I love these passages because these are sometimes we get a peek into what is really going on in the world, and what we see here is Job, a man who was righteous before God, that God is allowing for this for Satan to cause immense suffering, and what we see here is Job's response to this. And I really do believe, I believe that Job here is giving us a great look into the way a person whose heart and mind are fully focused on God and God alone. Listen to what he talks about. Let's start in verse 17. This is not a passage scripture to read in the morning when you talk to your wife. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. All right, literally going like everybody hates to be around me. All right. 18. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. My intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to the to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth, and there's not that much skin on your teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O oh, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? He's basically going, the hand of God is upon me for some reason. I still don't understand all of these things. Everyone abhors me. Everyone hates me. This is literally coming from the cry of a man who is suffering. And then you see in verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they would be engraved in a rock forever. Literally, he's going, if someone would just write this down, and then he adds to it in poetic form. He's going, if it were written down in a book, meaning to be kept for a while, and then he goes, if it was just literally carved into stone, so that way everyone would remember this. And here's what he's saying. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last we will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, thus... Yet in my flesh I shall see God. Here's what he's reminding himself. As we look at this world, and as we try to grapple with suffering, and we try to grapple with all these things, a Christian who has their mind focused on God and God alone, they will look and go, even all of these things come. No matter what happens, I know this thing is sure, that my Redeemer lives, and one day I will stand before God, and this body is going to be destroyed which most of us as we get older say, praise be to God because it's falling apart. But I know that my redeemer lives and I will be with him. There's so much that could be said about this. But when we, like Job, understand who we are, we are but dust the sheer fact that God has not destroyed us, the moment we sin, the sheer fact that we get mercy and grace each morning, we should stand before Him and say, even if you slay me, yet I'm going to trust in you. Whatever comes my way, I don't deserve anything. So whatever comes, whatever suffering comes my way, whatever is in your plan, I stand there and I say, Lord, let it be, because I don't deserve any of this. I mean, the hymn writer we just sang, saved. how does he describe himself? Saved an above-average guy like me? Is that how he describes himself? No. He says, saved a wretch like me. When we start to understand our wretchedness before God, there's some things that we don't even start to really question. You don't even start going, I understand I'm a wretch. What does a wretch deserve? wretchedness The sheer fact that you get grace, you go, who am I, Lord, that I would even get grace at all? That's why the song literally said, amazing grace, because we're amazed at this grace because we know who we are. And a lot of times we start at the wrong starting point, and so we get to some of these things that cause us to get all excited about because we have not actually started where the word of God starts with man. So let's go back to our text here. 1 Peter 3.18 when we start realizing that this life of suffering we've been called to, and Peter is going to realize this even more and later in his life here, but what Peter now says, suffering's going to come and it's going to be God's will. But in verse 18, he said, for Christ also suffered. Guess whose suffering was in God's will? His own son. All right, so we, we want to make sure we don't forget that. Because sometimes we think that, well, Jesus came and he died, but it really wasn't like my suffering. My suffering was really... No, Peter's reminding us that it was even in God's will that his son were to suffer even to the point of death. If you're a follower of Christ, what should you expect as well? For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. So if Christ is our example, I want to go through Peter real quick here. We're going to fly through all the different times where Peter is going to remind us, only three actually, that I'm going to point out here of Christ's suffering. 1 Peter 1, 1 11. Remember how the prophets long and they are into what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subs- sub- subsequent glories. You go over to 1 Peter two twenty one. Where we see here in First Peter two twenty one, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, two twenty one. I guess that would be better not in one twenty one. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. All right. Then even back in uh, go to four thirteen, and in four thirteen. We see, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you haven't gotten what Peter is writing about, one of the things he's writing about is you are going to suffer. But you're not suffering alone, because what did Christ do? He also suffered. And so when the suffering comes, whatever that looks like, we're supposed to have our eyes focused on Christ and Christ alone. But notice when we see this suffering here, It says, Christ also suffered once for sin. This once for sin is interesting because it carries with it the idea that this is not something that needs to be repeated. The suffering of Christ is complete. I want you to turn into Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews is a phenomenal uh, book. I guess every book in the Bible is great, but I think some are, I would say, I guess you can say somewhat better than others, but... um, Just like one time a guy said, all Scripture is God-breathed, but when you are on your deathbed, you probably don't want me to read the genealogies to you. You might want to read, like, Romans 8 or something else like that, but, you know, because this guy was giving him a hard time because he would say, well, this passage is a little better than this one. And he said, I'll let you pick what you want me to read when you're dying. Hebrews 7 here, 27. Talking about here, which is the great part... If you want to summarize all of Hebrews, it's Jesus is better than. And they just, he's better than Moses, he's better than this, he's better than that. Jesus came and was better than everything that went before, because everything that went before is pointing to Jesus. And now we get to Jesus, the high priest. And In Hebrews 7.27, it says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Because remember, the high priests were daily offering sacrifices, because guess what people did every day? They sinned. And this sin was coming, and so the priest would be daily offering sacrifices. And then even more, the priest would first have to offer a sacrifice for their own sin, and then for the people. But what Christ did, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ here we see in Hebrews 7 here is, Christ did not have to come and once give a sacrifice for himself, and then a sacrifice for the people. No, because he was the perfect sacrifice, made one sacrifice for all which also should remind us of this, the sacrifice, the completeness of the sacrifice. Uh, If you've been to a Roman Catholic church, you will notice their their cross looks different than our cross, and the cross in the Protestant world does not have Jesus still on it. And in the Roman Catholic world, there's a strong emphasis on the atoning work of Christ, not, sadly, I think they miss the completed work that is there, that he is no longer on the cross, The the cross was... One time, one sacrifice, the sacrifice is complete. And you'll see as we move even further that there is far more than just the atoning sacrifice. The atonement was the beginning of it, but then his resurrection and all of the things that come afterwards. The high priest is no longer, the perfect high priest, Christ, is no longer busy running around giving giving atonement. The sacrifice was suffered once for sin. The perfect sacrifice. And notice what it was done. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous is Christ, and we are described here as the what? The unrighteous. Again, this is the part I'm, I want to make sure we hit home. You are described here as unrighteous, all right? It's not described here as semi-okay, or just sick, or something else like that. No, the Bible calls you Christ. The just one suffered for those who were unjust or unrighteous. And this is what was needed. You needed that perfect sacrifice. And now what was this perfect sacrifice to do? For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, and see what the phrase is there, that what? What is to happen? What is the outcome of this? That he might bring us to God. Fellowship with God. Pause for a second there. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve are banned from the garden. No way of getting back. Literally, an angel is placed in the way. You're not coming back. There is no entrance back into this garden. The fellowship with God is broken, and we need to have a redeemer. We need to have a way back to God. And what we see here, and it's a really interesting thing as you see mankind, as you watch the, the redemptive story through the Bible. You have little inklings of what this might look like of mankind coming back to God, but you don't see it really playing out fully until all of a sudden you're starting to see some beautiful things playing out in the temple where the tabernacle was established. Because God starts saying, if you want to deal with the sin thing, let me give you my terms. And he starts laying out the terms in the temple and the tabernacle. Guess what they all start pointing to? this perfect Redeemer that's going to come, this perfect land that is going to come. And we see it started in the garden. You see even in the judgment that is poured out on Adam and Eve, you see it starting, but all of a sudden, as you see the redemptive plan revealing, you see the beauty of the tabernacle, you see the beauty of the sacrificial system to bring us to God. But even that is a problem. Because unless you're in the tribe of the Levites, unless you're in the family of Aaron, unless, and you just keep going... Only those people can get into the Holy of Holies. And not even when you can go to the holy once a year. And just to show you the importance of it, uh, if you ever get an opportunity, I love reading through the Book of Leviticus and you look at numbers, you look at all this. when he gives the priests, if you're going to enter in to my presence, if you're going to come into my presence, here's what you do. And it literally goes down to their undergarments, all the way, literally says, as you do these things, here's how you're going to dress. All the way to the part that is mind boggling is after you get done your dressing orders, you have this line, lest you die. All right, you're going to put this clothing on, lest you die. You're going to have holiness to the Lord put on, lest you die. All right, and so I don't know about you, but I've never gotten a job where they said, here's what you're going to wear today, lest you die. All right, if you probably got that on a job, you would go, maybe I need to take seriously what they're telling me. As I put this on, lest I die, what we're seeing here is that when you approach God, you approach Him on His terms and His terms alone. And not only that, after Aaron's sons have been consecrated to the Lord, Nadab and Ubayu offer strange fire one day before the Lord. That was not what God had said. And what happens? Fire comes out and consumes them. And they're killed, and Moses and Aaron are having this little conversation. And this is what Moses says. This is what God meant by those who approach me. I will be regarded as holy. You need to approach me on my terms, not on your terms. And we long for this day. We long for the day when we can go before the throne of God. But what does it mean to bring us to God? It means this, that there was forgiveness. Forgiveness for the transgression, the rebellion. But it had to happen through Christ's suffering, the perfect suffering, the perfect lamb. Forgiveness, the wrath of God removed. Not only just the wrath of God removed, but favor given. It's more than just the God not having his wrath be on you, but favor must be there. And then lastly, but not least, fellowship. We have been brought near to God, and notice this. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he might bring us to God for the purpose of what? Destroying all of us? No, he might bring us to God that we may be treasured. Bring us to God that we may have fellowship with him. One of the marks of a believer of Christ, one who has been redeemed, it is a desire, a heart's desire to want to be with him want to be with Christ. Because when we have been redeemed, we realize there is nowhere else we can go but to Him and Him alone. And so our desire is to be brought to God, and only can we come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which is interesting. As we came to this passage here, we see the table before us, and there's a couple of things here that I want to just spend some time and remind ourselves over and over and over again. Just like that phrase I was told over and over again, have you checked the gas? Have you checked the gas? And before you know once you realize, hey, wait a minute. Have we really ever sat and wondered and paused at this great redemption? Because think about this for a moment. Christ died for sin. Who's Christ? Perfect, holy. He died for sin. He did not die because he was sinful. He died. The sinless Christ died on behalf of sinners. The sacrificial system, as we talked about before, required an animal sacrifice. to atoned for sin over and over and over again. And that sin sacrifice had to be a spotless lamb. But yet, what was it done over and over and over again? It was also done in such a way that we you've got the beautiful picture seeing how gruesome sin really is. When that blood was spilled and the animal literally torn apart it was to show us that sin is not something we can just overlook as just a small infraction. It was sin. For Christ suffered once for sin. What did he suffer for? He suffered for sin. Christ came and was the perfect substitute for your behalf. Allow that truth to sink in. Because I think many times we say this stuff over and over as a church. We allow ourselves to think, oh, I'm not really that bad. I mean, most of us, you're not really that bad. You know, there's, oh, there's people that are worse than you, Right? Because who are the like three or four people that are in hell? Genghis Khan, Hitler, and, you know, a couple other people, Stalin. Right? But not us, right? Because we're okay. But when we sit before holy God, and we sit before the cross and we realize that we're all sinners, the Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It also reminds us that every single time we sin, The wages of sin earns us death. Every time you sin, you are earning death. But that doesn't stop there. But the gift of God is eternal life. This phrase here in the text, once for sin, it's a beautiful phrase. It carries with it the idea of once for all sin, meaning that there's no required repetition. If you could turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 again, and in Hebrews chapter 10, this is something that is a beautiful picture of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. So if you were to if you were to go back into the tabernacle of the temple, you would find all sorts of furniture all around, but there was one piece of furniture you would not see. That's not a, there would be there are no chairs in the temple. And you say, well, why aren't there any chairs in the temple? Well, because the temple was a spot where, and it tells us here, every priest stands daily at his service. Why are the priests standing daily at their service? They're standing there because they're offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Because guess what's happening every single day? Sin, all right? So what are the priests doing? All right. We're continually offering these sacrifices, all right? Because in these sacrifices... Could never take away sin. It would only, if you want to call it, appease for the next time it sinned and so forth. But there was no sacrifice that was once for all. And then verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time, how many sacrifices? One, a single sacrifice for sin. What did He do? He sat down because it's completed. All right, back to our why Christ is not on the cross because what is He? It has been completed. No more sacrifice needs to be offered Christ the perfect high priest came and gave the perfect sacrifice and literally what we see here he is now seated at the right hand of God and what is he waiting for waiting for that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet for that single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Literally, this text is reminding us of this. For those of us who are in Christ, there needs to be nothing more done for your redemption. It has been completed. There is nothing more that needs to be done. So do we rest in that? Or do we keep trying to say, well, wait a minute, let me somehow pay you off for this perfect sacrifice. Could you have made that sacrifice on your own? And the answer is no. You could have never have done it. Yet, because of our own sin and our own struggles... Somehow we think that we're going to somehow repay God by certain just we will call it acts of obedience. And he says, I'm the one that's working within you both to will and to do according to my good pleasure anyway. And do we sit there and do we rest in his saving work? Do we rest in his thing or do we feel that we somehow need to earn his good pleasure as if the cross was not sufficient enough to take away our sins and to give us life with him? Because there's another phrase in the just for the unjust that Paul even talks about. Reminding ourselves that you as an unjust person cannot make yourself just. You need a substitute. You need someone to go between you because there is no way you are getting to God on your own. Because if you were to go before God on your own, you would be consumed because you are a sinner and sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so at the root of what we're trying to say here today is this. This communion table here is a beautiful symbol that should cause us once a month to wake up and to say to ourselves, am I taking sin seriously? Number two, am I living in the freedom that being saved actually gives the believer, that rest that gives the believer? Because just like Christ's rest, I don't need to be out there somehow trying to justify myself and saying that somehow I earned myself before God. Because here's what happens. All week long, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we sin. Some of us think we're sinning more than others, but you all sin. And how many sins do you need to be to be a sinner? One, all right? So whether you think you had a phenomenal week or not, I would just say you probably have not read enough of God's Word to realize that almost everything you do, and I don't even know if I'd even argue with myself, probably everything we do is just caked with sin all right. And before you know, you look at the end of the day and go, What a wretched person I am. And then we in our minds we start going through, all right, you know, I was I lost my temper with this thing, or I got angry with that, or I was short with this person, I wasn't openly honest with this thing, and before you know, we start listening, and we're just like, I am just terrible. Well, so what I'm going to do then is tomorrow, I'm going to do a better job so God's happy with me. And so I was really bad today. And so I'm going to act better tomorrow. And what did we just start? You just w- might as well just go works work-based religion, right? Because you're going to work your way this way tomorrow, right? And you're going to do a couple of good things because remember, we all like to make our own justice scale, right? So if we kick the dog one day, you're supposed to read an extra chapter of the Bible this day and guess what it does. But what did we just see here? Christ came and paid the penalty for all sin. It's not like there's sins out there that God's going, well, I'll have to deal with that one later. No, the payment was made complete, no more. And how do we know that? The beautiful stamp when Jesus died on the cross was the temple veil was torn that we may go to God, no more need for sacrifices to be made. Because the great high priest entered in to the perfect Holy of Holies and gave the perfect sacrifice. And what is he doing right now? sitting at the throne of god we don't have a savior who's wringing his hands we don't have a savior who's wondering did i do enough to redeem my people we have a savior who has come and has done completely he has suffered but he suffered once that he might bring us to god so when we think of that communion table There's two elements in it, but both of these elements remind us of the suffering of Christ. We see the blood that was shed in the grape juice, and we see the symbol of the the, uh, bread that was broken. Jesus even talks about this. Remember when you do this, and you remember that great cost of your redemption and the suffering that was there. And the beautiful thing, though, is because of His great redemptive work, even our suffering here, as the Bible calls it, is momentary at best. Because when we're in eternity, we will see that none of this stuff compared anything to the glory that we have. One of the in my own mind, I try to my mind try to remind myself of these things as I have watched some people suffer. Some people die suffering, and there's other people that just they die of a heart attack in their sleep and they're gone, and like, why this person suffering and why not that? And the closest thing I can get to it is as we walk our journey path. There's some people that will have certain stones in their shoe that they'll remind them of their body falling apart, and there's others that will be entered into glory with very little suffering. But God is still faithful to both. I would almost argue that those who suffer more have a better taste of the goodness and grace of God than those who kind of just skirt through. Because you know what suffering did to Job? You don't have a guy that's skating through life say, listen, here's one thing. If I am about ready to die, here's what I want everybody to remember. I know that my Redeemer lives and everything's going to be gone, but in my flesh one day I'm going to see God and I can't wait to do that. That comes only from a life of suffering that God is chiseling away on us. But when we look to Christ, our example, here's the two responses. For those of us who are saved, our life then is a beautiful picture of gratitude. Of Gratitude. Back. I want to share just a short, quick example of what that looks like. So imagine in your family, uh, one day in the middle of the night, uh, there's a fire in your house and someone comes running in and saves your whole family all right, everybody's out, obviously the house burns down, but save them, and without that person coming in, you're all dead. What do you say to that person? Hey, thanks. (laughs) Like, is thank you really going to be good enough? Like, what do you go, like, literally without you, we would be dead. So, like, thank you, all right, and then that person comes over two days later and says, hey, listen, I broke my screwdriver. Could I borrow yours? What would you say to that? Of course, you know, like, you want, you want my whole set, you know, like, because I, I understand how, what I've been saved from, all right, I understand this, all right, and, and even giving them the, the screwdriver, it's a the thing of joy that you would have, right, that you'd be like, I can't, and I'll come over and help you, what can I do, and you're not doing this out of, oh, man, I owe a debt, right, you wouldn't be like, oh, great, that guy that saved our lives is going to come over and ask something more, all right, you know, such an... Un- No, when we live a life of gratitude, it's, is there a way or is there anything I can do? Yes, Lord. Here am I, send me, right? What do you need? Whatever it is, here I am. When we think of our communion table, when we think of our Savior's death, we remember that. Now, for those who are unsaved in this room, those who have not Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. My call to you is to come and find your rest in Him. For those in this room who are not saved or in the sound of my voice that are not saved, I would say to you, you will not find any rest until you find your rest in Him. Pursue anything you want. Go after whatever you want. You will find that it is only wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting, and it will never satisfy Go after money, go after fame, go after all those things and you will find they are all fleeting and there is only one thing that lasts. There's only one thing that your soul will find rest in and it is Christ and Christ alone. Run to Him and find your rest in Him. We're about ready to sing a song and then go to the communion table. My prayer is that even though we maybe have talked about things you have heard over and over and over again, Things that you may have said, Tim, I already knew that. My prayer for you today is that you would pause and reflect on these things. I'm going to give us a moment to just reflect on what was said and give you a moment to have some time with Christ before I pray and then we sing. Just a moment to reflect, to get your heart and your mind ready for the communion table. Let's take that moment now. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So take our hearts, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. We ask these things in our son's name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us as we sing.